This morning we're in Exodus 28 and 29. I invite you to open up there this morning. We've been walking through the book of Exodus and we've seen God do a lot of things for His people. Most recently, He's entered into a covenant with them at Mount Sinai, a binding agreement where God says that He will dwell with and bless His people if they obey Him, but if they ignore His commands and go their own way and pursue idolatry, then they will break this covenant and God will not stand as their God and their King. He will instead be their judge and their enemy. There's a problem though. If God is going to go with His people, if He's going to dwell near them and He is holy and they're not, then something special has to happen. If Israel as sinners get too close to this holy God, then His holiness will consume them. Because God who is holy cannot be in the presence of sin without standing against it. But if God is not near them, then He cannot bring His purposes and His promises to pass. He has to be near them and yet not too close to them so His holiness won't consume them. And the special arrangement God gives Israel is what we looked at last week. A moving tent structure called the tabernacle. This tent is where God would come down and dwell with His people but not be too close to His people. This was a structure that could only be approached if you were ceremonially ceremonially clean, if you were holy. Blood sacrifices had to be made constantly on the altar to atone for sin. The tent of meeting was full of furniture, all of which had symbolic meaning to teach Israel about who God was as holy, about who they were as sinners, and about how they could be saved through the shed blood of an atoning sacrifice offered by a high priest who interceded for them. All of this was theological in nature, teaching God's people about who God was. But the question remains, who would oversee and protect this tabernacle? Who would oversee and ensure that this tabernacle and its sacrifices were being offered in the God-ordained way? Who would ensure that God's laws were kept so that God, who is holy, would continue to dwell with His people, Israel? And the answer is the priest from the tribe of Levi. The priests who are described in Exodus chapter 28 and 29. I actually have wrote here in my notes, I'm not going to read these two full chapters aloud, but instead I'm going to summarize them. But I've changed my mind. I want us to read them. Because I want you to feel what was required for these priests to be near God. So the sermon was going to be short today, but not anymore. Exodus 28. This is God's Word. Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons, with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priest, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother, for glory and for beauty. 
You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with a spirit of skill, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a goat, a coat of checkered work, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother and his sons to serve me as priest. They shall receive gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twisted linen, and they shall make the ephod of gold, of blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and of fine twisted linen skillfully worked. It shall have two shoulder pieces attached to its edges, so that it may be joined together, and the skillfully and the skillfully woven band on it shall be made like it, and be of one piece with it, of gold, and blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twisted linen. You shall make take two onyx stones, and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel, six of their names on the one stone, and the name of the remaining six on the other stone, in the order of their birth. As a jeweler engraves signet, so shall you engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall enclose them in settings of gold filigree, and you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear the names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. You shall make settings of gold filigree and two chains of pure gold twisted like cords, and you shall attach the corded chains to the settings. You shall make a breastpiece of judgment and skilled work in the style of the ephod. You shall make it of gold and blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twisted linen. You shall make it. It shall be square and doubled, a span its length and a span its breadth. You shall set it in four rows of stones. A row of sardius, topaz, and carbuncle shall be the first row, and the second row an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond, and the third row of jacinth, and a gate, and an amethyst, and the fourth row a barrel, an onyx, and a jasper. They shall be set in gold filigree. There shall be twelve stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They shall be like signets, each engraved with its name for the twelve tribes. You shall make for the breastpiece twisted chains like cords of pure gold, and you shall make for the breastpiece two rings of gold, and put the two rings on the two edges of the breastpiece, and you shall put the two cords of gold in the two rings at the edges of the breastpiece. The two ends of the two cords you shall attach to the two settings of filigree, and so attach it in front to the shoulder pieces of the ephod. You shall make two rings of gold and put them at the two ends of the breastpiece and on its inside edge next to the ephod. And you shall make two rings of gold and attach them in front to the lower part of the two shoulder pieces of the ephod at its seam above the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And they shall bind the breastplate by its rings to the rings of the ephod with a lace of blue so that it may lie on the skillfully woven band of the ephod so that the breastpiece shall not come loose from the ephod. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring to remembrance to bring 
them to regular remembrance before the Lord. And in the breastpiece of judgment you shall put the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. You shall make the robe of the ephod all of blue. It shall have an opening for the head in the middle of it, and a woven binding around the opening like the opening in a garment so that it may not tear. On its hem you shall make pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarns around its hem with bells of gold between them, a golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate around the hem of the robe. And it shall be on Aaron when he ministers, and its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord, and when he comes out so that he does not die. You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet holy to the Lord, and you shall fasten it on the turban by a cord of blue. It shall be on the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead, and Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. You shall weave the coat in checker work of fine linen, and you shall make a turban of fine linen, and you shall make a sash embroidered with needlework. For Aaron's sons, you shall make coats and sashes and caps. You shall make them for glory and beauty, and you shall put them on Aaron your brother and on his sons with him. You shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them that they may serve me as priest. You shall make for them linen undergarments to cover their naked flesh. They shall reach from the hips to the thighs, and they shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place, lest they bear guilt and die. This shall be a statute forever for him and for his offspring after him. Chapter 29, verse 1. Now, this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them. They shall that they may serve me as priest. Take one bull of the herd and two rams without blemish, and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers smeared with oil. You shall make them of fine wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket and bring them in the basket and bring the bull and the two rams. You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Then you shall take the garments and put on Aaron the the coat and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the breastpiece and gird him with skillfully woven band of the ephod and you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban you shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him then you shall bring his sons and put coats on them and you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them and the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons then you shall bring the bull before the tent of meeting. Aaron and his son shall lay their hands on the head of the bull. Then you shall kill the bull before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall take part of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your fingers and the rest of the blood you shall pour out at the base of the altar and you shall take all the fat that covers the entrails and the long robe of the liver and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them and burn them on the altar 
but the flesh of the bull and its skin and its dung you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. Then you shall take one of the rams, and Aaron and his son shall lay their hands on the head of the ram, and you shall kill the ram and take its blood and throw it against the sides of the altar. Then you shall cut the ram into pieces and watch its entrails and its legs and put them with its pieces and its head, and burn the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord, a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. You shall take the other ram, and Aaron and his son shall lay their hands on the head of the ram, and you shall kill the ram and take part of its blood and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron and on the tips of the right ears of his sons and on the thumbs of their right hands and on the great toes of their right feet and throw the rest of the blood against the sides of the altar. Then you shall take part of the blood that is on the altar and on the anointing and sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments and on his sons and his sons' garments with him. He and his garments shall be holy and his sons and his sons' garments with him. You shall also take the fat from the ram and the fat tail and the fat that covers the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them and the right thigh, for it is a ram of ordination, and one loaf of bread and one cake of bread made with oil and one wafer out of the basket of unleavened bread that is before the Lord. You shall put all of these on the palms of Aaron and on the palms of his sons and on the palm and wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. Then you shall take them from their hands and burn them on the altar on top of the burnt offering as a pleasing aroma before the Lord, a food offering to the Lord. You shall take the breast of the ram of Aaron's ordination and wave it for the wave offering before the Lord, and it shall be your portion. And you shall consecrate the breast of the wave offering that is waved and the thigh of the priest's portion that is contributed from the ram of ordination, from what was Aaron's and his sons. It shall be for Aaron and his sons as a perpetual due from the people of Israel, for it is a contribution. It shall be a contribution from the people of Israel, from their peace offerings, their contribution to the Lord. The holy garments of Aaron shall be for his sons after him. They shall be anointed in them and ordained in them. The son who succeeds him as a priest who comes into the tent of meeting to minister in the holy place, Place shall wear them seven days. You shall take the ram of ordination and boil its flesh in a holy place, and Aaron and his sons shall eat the flesh of the ram and the bread that is in the basket in the entrance of the tent of meeting. They shall eat those things with which atonement was made at their ordination and consecration, but an outsider shall not eat of them because they are holy. And if any of the flesh for the ordination or the bread remain until the morning, then you shall burn the remainder with fire. It shall not be eaten because it is holy. Thus you shall do to Aaron and his sons according to all I've commanded you. Through seven days you will ordain them, and every day you shall offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement. And you shall purify the altar when you make atonement for it, and shall anoint it to consecrate it. Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and consecrate it, and the altar shall be most holy. Whatever touches the altar shall become holy. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs a year old, day by day, regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twice. 
twilight. And with the first lamb, a tenth measure of fine flour mingled with a fourth of hen of beaten oil and a fourth of hen of wine for a drink offering. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight and shall offer with it a grain offering and its drink offering as in the morning for a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel, and I will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Now, I've got some points, but I want to just draw your attention to a few things before I get to these points I've got wrote down. If you think God doesn't care about the details of your life and our worship, you have got it wrong. God cares significantly about every area of our lives. He cares about how He is worshipped. Also, I think it's important to point out, a lot has to happen for sinful people to be near a holy God. This namby-pamby, weak theology that is proclaimed today, where we just think that God is love and accepts you as you are, is clearly contradicted by the God of the Bible. Old covenant and new covenant. God cares about how He's worshipped. God cares about how He's approached. And we cannot approach a holy God unless we follow the specific guidelines that He has given to His people. These, These are clearly seen verse after verse as we think about the details of just the priesthood and what they're to wear and how they're to be ordained. This kind of stuff makes me thankful that our bylaws are so easy to read, right? You just, if you are a member here and you've ever read through our bylaws, it, it's easy to think, man, there's a lot of details here that I would like to shorten this document. And I read this and I'm like, man, our bylaws are easy, right? Um, it is not an easy thing to enter into the presence of a holy God. And it is easy for us to say, why in the world would I ever need to know what you just read? I hope to show you why. So what I want to do this morning is I want to try to summarize what those chapters said and why they matter for us today by, by pointing to who these priests are, what they wear, what they did, and who they point us to is obviously Jesus. So first point, who, who are these men? Who they are? They're consecrated Levites. Exodus 28 verse 1 says, Aaron and his sons and the tribe of Levi, they're to be set apart as priests. 
And to be a priest, you have to come from the people of Israel so that you can identify with them. A priest could understand what the people he was representing were going through. They could understand their temptations and their trials, but they were called to be set apart and holy. And among all these priests, one of them would be the high priest, the leader who would play the most important role in the tabernacle. When that high priest, Aaron, died, one of his sons would take the mantle and become the high priest. So the priest had a certain bloodline. Like all the people of Israel, they came from the family of Abraham. But more specifically, they came from the tribe of Jacob's third son named Levi. These priests were supposed to represent Israel before God. The people can't go into God's presence because they're unholy. The priest goes near God in their place to represent them. And to do that, they had to be consecrated, to be made holy, which is detailed very specifically in Exodus 29. They had to be washed with water. They had to be dressed in holy garments. They had to be anointed with holy oil. Three sacrifices had to be made for seven consecutive days. One was an offering for sin. One was a whole burnt offering, which was was communicating to God, all of my life is yours, I'm consecrated to you. One was a food offering to the Lord. Lots and lots of animals died. Lots and lots of blood was shed. And this priest had to put their hand on the the heads of these slain animals and they were identifying with them and saying, God, I deserve because of my sin what this animal is about to get. This is what I deserve because you're a holy God and I'm a sinner. So these priests and their garments that they wore and the altar that that sacrifices were offered on and all the tabernacle furniture that we detailed last week, all of it had to be consecrated again and again because God is holy and something special has to happen for a holy God to dwell in the midst of an unholy people. When we read all of those details, it is easy to think, does this matter? It's easy to get dizzy with all of these details, trying to remember what God's rules were for what you had to wear and how to be ordained and consecrated and where the blood was supposed to be sprinkled and when and in what order and how long and all the details. And that is the point. We must remember that something extremely important and unique must happen for a holy God to dwell near an unholy people. Because that is not possible unless God reveals how to do it through His Word. That's what we have here. So we see here first who these priests are. They're consecrated Levites, but we also see what they wore. Holy garments. And there should be a a picture, I think, on the computer that we can pop up on the screen. And this is taken out of the ESV study Bible. And uh, this is just an image of what the high priest would be wearing, all those details that I read. And what it says is, is that the high priest was going to have eight articles of clothing, 
a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checkered work, a turban, a sash, a plate of pure gold to go across the forehead of his turban, even down to the details of what kind of underwear they were wearing, right? You might think, why does underwear matter in all of these lists? And the reason is this, because in the ancient Near East, many people would use uh, the altars that were Uh, sacrifices were made on, and they would use these worship experiences to promote sexual promiscuity. This was a way that they would worship their gods and try to incite their false gods to give them rain and give them crops and provide for them. And, And God says, no, we will not be like that. I am a holy God. I care about the details, even down to what kind of underwear you wear. So think about that at Christmas when you go shopping for your husbands and granddads for underwear. God cared even about those things for His people. And every one of these articles of clothing have significance, and I'm just going to point out the significance of a few of them. Exodus 28 verses 9 through 12 say that the shoulder piece that the high priest wore had two onyx stones on it. You can maybe see in this picture up on the shoulders that You kind of have to look because the image is small. There's two stones up here, onyx stones. And those stones had engraved on them the names of the 12 tribes of Israel in birth order. Six on one and six on the other. And the reason that's given for why the people's names were on these onyx stones was so that Aaron the high priest, could bear their names before the Lord. When he went into the holy place, and when the only thing separating him from God in the holy of holies was the the curtain that separated them, he was bearing the names of the people of God. And then you see on his his chest, right, on the breast piece, that there were... uh, Lots of little stones, 12 precious stones set in a very specific order, each of them also representing one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Why? Verse 29 says, Aaron shall bear the names of all the sons of Israel on his heart as he goes into the holy place to bring them to remembrance before the Lord. These stones symbolized that the priest was representing all of Israel before God so that the priest, his holy acts of sacrifice, his service to the Lord, his prayers on their behalf, all of these things were done on behalf of the people for God. The turban on his head had a plate of gold across the front that said, Holy to the Lord, once again, symbolic that he was representing Israel as a holy high priest before God so that all of Israel could be accepted before the Lord. The point of all these wardrobe details is to remind us that God directs our worship and that Israel needed a go-between. They needed a priest to stand between them and God. And this priest was commanded to wear this elaborate clothing that symbolized their role as a holy covenant mediator. They were called by God to represent the people before God and to make sure that this holy God could continue to dwell in their Present. So our text tells us who these priests were, it tells us what they wore, and then third, it tells us what they did. 
They represented the people before God. They interceded before God for the people. And they made sacrifices for the people. Now, it said in the text that I just mentioned that all these stones were meant to bring to remembrance the people of Israel before the Lord. God is all-knowing. He's omniscient. There's nothing that He doesn't know. It's not that He was going to forget them, but instead, this served the purpose of reminding the people of Israel that they have a high priest who is going to God. This God has showed them grace. He has shown them love. He has saved them. He has come into covenant with them. And this, these stones going before God would have reminded them that they have a mediator, that God will remember His promises and keep them. Commentator Daniel Hyde has written that this was a reminder to Israel that the same Creator who gave names to millions and millions of stars in the galaxy is also an intimate personal God who knows each of His people by name. So the high priest would bring to remembrance the names of the people before God, but he would also pray for them. In the holy place at the altar of incense, morning and evening incense was offered, and this represented the prayers of the priests that were being offered for the people of God. He was their holy, consecrated representative, and he would pray for them. He would intercede for them. He would plead with God on their behalf, morning and evening. This was one of his roles, but probably the most important role was that he would oversee the sacrificial system. He would oversee what was done on the altar. This process that God had given for sins to be removed. Sacrifices were constantly being offered for sin. And we saw last week these sacrifices would cover the sins of the people, but what they were really pointing forward to was a once a year sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, detailed in Leviticus 16. On this Day of Atonement, the high priest would actually go into the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, where God's presence dwelt. He would go beyond the veil, the only person that could do this, but once a year, and he would sprinkle the blood of a sacrifice on the mercy seat to make propitiation for the people of Israel's sins, to turn away the judgment and wrath of God for sin. That's what all of those sacrifices that were offered throughout the year would point forward to. So these priests had to constantly be anointed And holy, they had to remain ceremonially clean. They had daily tasks in the courtyard and the holy place. They had to keep the fires burning constantly, constantly be mixing the oils up perfectly for anointing. They had to bring in the bread of the presence each week. They had to keep everything clean and consecrated at all times. They had to guard the tabernacle so that people from the outside who weren't clean couldn't come in. There were millions of little things to do for these priests day in and day out so that a holy God could dwell in the midst of His people. These priests represented the people, interceded before God for the people, and offered the sacrifices that were needed for God to stay dwelling with the people. Now, it's easy to say, 
Okay, I get it. Lots of stuff had to happen. How does this relate to me? If we don't get how holy God is, if we don't grasp in our minds how impossible it is for those who have fallen short of God's glory to be at peace with God and near God, if we don't get that, then the gospel of Jesus will not make sense to us. If if we don't get that God is not just this big, loving grandpa in the sky, who when we do things bad, He just gives us an ice cream cone anyway. If, If we don't get this thought out of our head that God is all love and grace and mercy, but not also just and righteous and holy. If we just have part of the picture of who God is, then God's grace will be misunderstood in our lives. It will be misapplied in our lives. And we will feel no passion and no zeal and no concern for the Lord and for His Word. We won't sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound, because the grace of God is not that amazing to us. It's just kind of average type of grace. We have to get this, and the way that God has ordained for the church to understand who God is and to understand what Jesus has done is through understanding the priesthood and the tabernacle and the temple and the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies and the presence of God and all of these details, these beautiful, specific confusing, consecrated details. In the book of Hebrews, probably more beautifully than anywhere else in the New Testament, explains how Jesus is what all of these things point us forward to. The last thing that we see from our text and from all the Bible is who these priests and their sacrifices point us to our great high priest, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 2.17 says, Jesus had to be made like His brothers in every respect so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, so that He might make propitiation for the sins of His people. Hebrews 4, 14, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. Jesus had to become one of us. He had to take on flesh so that He could identify with us, so that He could represent us before God. Like a priest, Jesus had to be anointed, but not by another priest. He was anointed by His Father. But unlike those priests in the Old Testament who had to offer sacrifices for their own sin, Jesus never had to be made holy or made clean because He was always perfectly holy. Unlike the priests in the past who could only serve as high priests until they died, Jesus, who defeated death through His resurrection, can serve as our great high priest at the right hand of God today and forevermore. Unlike the priests, 
priest for Israel who would pray for God's people and intercede for them in the holy place of the tabernacle, Jesus sits at the right hand of God the Father interceding for His people always. Unlike the high priest who year after year after year had to go in on the Day of Atonement to offer a blood sacrifice for sin, Jesus offers His own sacrificial blood as a once-for-all sufficient substitutionary sacrifice that truly pays for sin. Hebrews 9 says that Jesus doesn't offer the blood of bulls and goats like the high priest in Israel, but instead He offers His own spotless blood for our sin. This is not a recurring sacrifice. It worked the first time and it was enough. He is the high priest of a new and a better covenant. Jesus dies for His people. Jesus bears the wrath of God. Jesus turns away the judgment that we deserve for our sin. And as our high priest, He is daily, constantly, even this very second, interceding for His people. And He will one day come and return and get them and take them home to live with Him forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever at peace with God. Why? Because He's our high priest. Because of Jesus' high priestly work, we have confidence to enter the holy presence of God by His blood, by the new and living way that He opened through the curtain of His flesh. Friends, it is easy to grow bored with Old Testament rituals. It is easy to skip and skim read the details of the Old Testament, of its laws and its covenants and its sacrifices and its temples and tabernacles and priesthood garments. But God has worked through these things in history to give us categories of salvation. Understanding the Passover, understanding the covenants, understanding the laws and the Sabbath and the tabernacle and the temple and the blood sacrifices and the priesthood. Understanding those things is God's plan for us to help us make sense of what Jesus has done for us. Because the tabernacle sacrifices and the priesthood were never meant to be an end in themselves. They were a type of something pointing something to something greater. They were a shadow of something that was pointing forward to the substance. And like Israel, we can't dwell near God in our sin. And like Israel, we too need a holy mediator and a blood sacrifice. Like Israel, we need a high priest who will bear our names before a holy God. Because if we don't have that, we will face the God of all holiness and His judgment as His enemy. And sinful priests can never grant us real access to God. And the blood of bulls and goats can never truly atone For our sin. And seeing a tent 
in the distance and offering a sacrifice on an altar but not being able to go to God, that is different than seeing God face to face where there is fullness of joy. We need more than that. We need a great high priest who can truly atone and His name is Jesus. And the good news about our great high priest is that He has identified with us and He understands our temptation because He's faced it. He understands our trial because He's faced it. He has faced it. He can relate to us. He can help us. Think about how comforting that is. Have you ever gone through something and someone came to you and they were trying to help? They were trying to say something helpful in the midst of whatever you were going through, but they didn't really know what to say, and they hadn't ever really been through it themselves, and they tried to say something helpful, but it just kind of didn't work. Probably all of us have. Jesus gets it. Jesus has been tempted and tried. Jesus has went through trials and betrayal and suffering. And as our high priest, He can help us in the midst of whatever we're going through. Jesus doesn't just offer a sacrifice that costs Him nothing on an altar. Jesus offers His very life for our sin. While Jesus hangs in agony on the cross of Calvary, while Jesus bears the judgment of a holy God, He is not just dying for sin in general. He is dying for your sin. Jesus is bearing the wrath and judgment of God for your sin for your lust, for your unrighteous anger, for your pride or your greed. Jesus is dying on the cross and bearing the wrath of God for my selfishness, for our love of money, our gossiping tongue, even for our boredom with the things of God. Jesus is dying on the cross and bearing the wrath of God for our neglect of loving the local church, for the authority issues we have in our heart, for our hard heart towards those in need of mercy. Jesus is dying on the cross for our idols, for our lack of self-control, for our impure motives, for our coveting and our discontentment and our lack of faith. He's not just dying for sin in general. He's dying for my sin sin and your sin to turn away the wrath of God who is holy. The high priest in Israel would go near to God and the names of Israel would be written on his shoulder pieces and would be represented in the precious stones on his chest. But Jesus, our great high priest, does not bear our names on the garments that He wears. Instead, He bears our names in His blood-stained hands. Jesus' blood is offered for ours and no other sacrifice is needed.
Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding always for His blood-bought, forgiven, and empowered people. Friends, Jesus can help us when tempted because He's been there. Jesus can help us in trials because He's been there. Jesus can help us when we feel shame and guilt because He shed His blood to atone for our sin. Jesus can help us because if we're His people, He's constantly praying for us before the throne of God. So if you are in Christ Jesus this morning by faith... You are not alone. You are not misunderstood by God. You are not being ignored by God. You are not forgotten by God. You are not powerless because you have Jesus, your great high priest. And because of that, believers can press on. They can persevere through trials. They can say no to sin when tempted. They can rejoice in the midst of trials that don't make any sense. They can look forward to being with God forever and ever because of Jesus, our great high priest. That is the gospel. That is our hope. That is our joy. It always has been and always will be about Jesus. We can stand before God's throne forgiven and accepted and loved and embraced and empowered forever and ever because of Jesus. The question that we have to ask is, do I know Him? Not do I know things about the Bible. Not do I come to church. Not do I do offerings and Sunday school and stuff like that. Do I know Him? Have I repented of my sins and believed in His finished work? Am I resting in my high priest, Jesus Christ? Because, friends, He loved you and He died for you and He will keep you and He will comfort you and He hears you and He knows He knows about that thing that you're worried about, that you're dwelling on, that you're thinking about, that you're scared of. He knows. And He loves you. Do you know Him? Are you resting in Him today? If not, I pray that you'll turn from sin and believe in Him. That you'll trust in His high priestly work for you. That you'll surrender your life because there is no love like the love of Christ. We would do well to run to Him by faith today. We would do well to rest in Him because He is worth it. He is our high priest, but we must believe. Let's pray. Father God, I thank You for Your grace and Your mercy. God, I acknowledge that I have failed you in so many ways before I knew you and every day since I've come to know you. God, it is so easy to try to save ourselves. It is so easy to try to trust in our work. It is so easy to to play church but not really know you. 
and not really be resting in you. God, I pray that you will help me and help us to rest in the love of Christ. To remember who he is and what he's done. God, help us to be blown away by what Jesus has done for us. Help us to not be bored with your word, to not be bored with the things of God, to not be bored with your plan and your will for us because we're so busy loving the things you've made. God, help us to lift our gaze to you today. God, I pray that if there's anyone here, Lord, who who is trusting in their own good works, who's trying to clean themselves up to be made right with you, who's thinking, if I can just do this enough and this enough, then God will love me and accept me. God, I pray that they will flee from those lies and run to the foot of the cross where Jesus, our great high priest, laid down his life. God, I pray that if anyone here is thinking that they can be friends with you, a holy God, in any way other than through Jesus Christ and faith in Him, that they will stop believing those lies and run to you. God, whatever it is that holds us back, let us respond now. And God, for your people who know you, for your people whose names are written in your blood-stained hand, for your people empowered by your Spirit. God, help us to remember and rest in the Gospel this morning. God, help us to respond. However your Spirit leads, help us to respond and do business with you. God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. Be with us as we close and as we sing. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.